Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 299 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast at thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. So how has your new year been going? Does it feel like a fresh start, another chance, new year, new you? How's the resolution? Are you plugging along with your fitness routine? Are you giving up smoke or whatever you were trying to do? I really hope so. I do, because... I believe in new starts and taking on change. For me, though, it doesn't actually feel like the new year has started yet. It just feels like 2022 got an extra month packed on. Call it October, if you will. Maybe that's why, as my guest today pointed out, I originally published a Twitter thread for new to me movies, but miskeyed 2022 instead of 2023. There were just a lot of things that needed tying off, closing up, letting go over the span of January. It felt more 22 than 23, like this show. If I was smart, I would have pushed to get episode 300 in 22, instead of letting it fall into early 23. But here we are. We have one more to go before a milestone, and it feels like we're prolonging things. But we are where we are, and I'm happy that we are where we are, because helping me get through this 13th month of 2022 is a man who is near and dear to my heart, a man who wouldn't tell me what the man you gnomes were about, but was kind enough to let me know how to maximize is here from the unnamed movie podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing okay, you know, chilling out. Um, as I said, I got my rum. You know, the mixologist in me is saddened that you didn't like infuse that with smoke or something you know just straight up rum and coke that that's for that that's bush league you're lucky that i put the coke in here (laughs) so on episode 299 we are going to go to the straight goods for a few different reasons we're going to have andrew back sometime later on in the year to do another round of know your enemy but not today today we're going to go straight to the new slang And it comes with a spoiler warning because I really believe there is just no way to discuss this film without really getting into that. And if you want proof of this, watch the trailer for this movie. I will include it in the show notes. And look at just how little they show you. Look at the promotional material for this film. Look at how little they show you. That is by design because the story is the story and you either got to talk about all of it or none of it. So be advised, we will be talking about all of it. We have a lot to discuss today about the whale right after this. The Whale is directed by Darren Aronofsky. It is written by Samuel Hunter, based on the stage play of the same name, also by Hunter. It stars Brendan Fraser, Hong Chow, Sadie Sink, Ty Simpkins, and Samantha Morton. The Whale is about Charlie, that's Fraser, an online English professor who is reclusive and struggling with morbid obesity. His closest connection is his friend and nurse Liz, that's Hong Chow, who one day discovers that his blood pressure has put him firmly in line for congestive heart failure. This face-off with mortality has Charlie reaching out to his estranged daughter, Elle, that's Sadie, whom he bribes into spending time with him. If she will sit, talk, and write, he will redo her English essay 
and pay her a tidy sum. Also coming and going is Thomas, a door-to-door missionary trying to evangelize our hero. He strikes up an uneasy kinship with both Charlie and Ellie individually, but Liz is wary of the would-be shepherd for her own reasons. So it goes that we are witness to the last days of Charlie, confessor to his failures, his hopes, and his optimism. By description alone, stories like The Whale have a tendency to become tragedy porn, the long, hard look at something we'd rather not look at for the sake of art. There's a whole subgenre of this sort of film that wants to make us uncomfortable and wants to make us think. The Whale seems like it could be a new inclusion into that genre, a tale that is hard to watch, but ultimately good for us. So pop quiz hotshot, let us begin there. Does this film fall into the category of tragedy porn, or does it somehow elevate itself to something more? Yes, no, maybe so. It's entirely about what you focus on, I feel, with this movie. Like, there's, there are definitely scenes where it feels tragic. Um, it feels specifically difficult to watch. It feels entirely all too much all at the same time. And there are scenes where it feels completely opposite to that, where you kind of are taken away from the tragedy and you think more about, you look almost at the optimism of like the freedom of knowing that this has an end almost, where you're like, now we know what his goal is. It's not life, it's something else. And you just kind of are with him in that. Um, There are lots of difficult things in this movie. There are lots of questionable things, but there are also more not necessarily uplifting but generally less downbeat mm. moments in this movie that you can latch on to if you decide to okay i i see what you're saying and we will dig into a lot of that um as we go along i didn't want this movie to be misery porn and already i can i can hear our friend hillary butler yelling at me through her headphones but i sat with it today. You and I watched this together last night and I sat with it a lot today. And I really have come down on the side that this film is tragedy porn. It wants us to feel sympathetic, but I don't know if it wants us to feel empathetic and it wants us to think, Oh, how terrible. Look at this guy's tragic life. Look at what has happened to him that has brought him to this very difficult place even though there is a lot of beauty along the way to this difficult place i i believe the way that this movie is executed really wants us to mire in the in the muck and the shadows of this movie rather than uh, you know either empathize with how it all happened or dare we suggest even revel in some of the moments of joy there are moments in the movie which are those misery porn moments that feel almost like centerpieces but at the same time the the film is filled in fills in the rest of the gaps with a lot of otherness and that kind of comes from the rest of the cast more outside of um fraser's character i was cackling beside you if and only because there's a point in this movie where the the sister-in-law nurse kind of starts doing the joke that I had already started in my head (laughs) before it happened in the movie to reminded me that I'm actually a terrible human being. Um, But the movie knows we're all terrible human beings and we should enjoy each other sometimes. 
for me, it's those those extra fillings. It's not necessarily focusing on um, our main protagonist here, who, I mean, I don't think I specifically thought of it as, oh, cry for me, kind of a film, at least not in every moment. As I said, there are moments that kind of focus on it a lot more. Mm -hmm. But it definitely never hit me as down as some other more misreporting movies I've had to sit through. In case people can't already tell, it sounds like we're a little bit divided on this movie. Uh, I don't think either one of us is going to call it a masterpiece, that's for sure. But it sounds like you liked it a little bit more than I did. Uh, Like is a strong word. Oh, okay. (laughs) You appreciated it? I I appreciate what's going on with the movie. So how I like to describe movies like these now, and maybe it's because I'm getting older and I'm finally coming to terms with my own relationship with movies, is that there are movies like this where I walk away from it and I think about how affecting the performances were. I think about how intrinsically intentful some of the direction is, how the writing kind of keeps everything going. And at the same time, admitting to myself, looking in that mirror and saying, I'm not watching that movie again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not telling you the movie's bad. Right. But is it a movie for me to sit through? Not really. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is, as a for instance, you know, I can really, really enjoy bourbon and tequila and gin and triple sec, but I don't want them all in the same glass. Correct. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I had to drink it all in the same glass. And while there are good things about this project, I came away from it really scratching my head, wondering how it came to be this way. So here's Brendan Fraser. Uh, I feel like he's been gone for a very long time. I mean, he was in a he was in a superhero show, but no one watched it. Oh, that's but it, I mean, <laughs> it was his voice, wasn't it? Like, was it? Was no, he... he actually shows up occasionally. Okay, okay, right? <laughs> gotcha. Thank you for that. But but I mean, as far as his as far as his film career is concerned, yeah, he, he took a break. Yeah, he took he took a break, and I mean, let us be clear: he this man took a break for reasons, and if you don't understand why, just kind of do a Google, you will find out. Um, but it's it's been a minute since we've seen him in something large scale. This is something different for him. He's not new to doing stuff that is low key. He's not new to doing uh, projects that are really thoughtful and projects that are, um, you know, really well crafted in a lot of ways, even if they're messy. But this seems like everything came together for him. I would actually go so far as to say that his performance transcends the fact that he is in some absurd prosthetics. Is it strange that for a lot of this movie, uh, I really wasn't paying attention to the prosthetics as much as I kept looking really closely at some of the shots to see if I could see where there would have been the actual edges and where the CG would have like brushed over <laughs> some of the work. I mean, I, th- I think that comes down to how you like try to see how the, <laughs> how the sausage is made, yeah. but um, it drops you right into that. 
You know, like it, it's mildly ironic that we start hearing him before we see him on this black screen that he uh, uses to teach his students because he doesn't want to turn his webcam on. Um, you know, th- this is this is a character who work from home has absolutely benefited and was able just to use the excuse of, well, my camera's not working, but you can hear me, so that's okay. Starting out hearing him before we see him, it really kind of tries to pull us into what's important. Listen to this guy. Don't don't let your what your eyes may or may not want to look at, don't let that that cloud you. Listen to him. Listen to his thoughts. Listen to his hopes you know he he, this is a very very hopeful character brendan fraser because he has always had the tenderness that he has and especially now at the age that he is is able to sell it but i feel like he is selling it despite not selling it because so like you talk about listening to him Mm -hmm. And weirdly enough, the thing that I left the movie was not so much listening, but to watch him. I think the scene that stood up the most for me, which is probably one of the most difficult scenes in the movie for me, um, was the scene where he emotionally breaks down and he goes on a binge, an eating binge. Maybe it's because I've been thinking a lot about that idea, the idea of emotional eating. Your emotions take you over and you find yourself unable to unable to cease from eating and obviously like the image in the movie is not the image I'm thinking about but it's the same idea I almost kind of thought about it in that moment watching the movie the same way I kind of felt about and this is a stretch um nearing the finale of Uncut Gems okay right Uncut Gems a movie I quite love and I know a lot of people love it is a movie that I love even more than just being a ridiculous continued rabbit hole of just craziness happening piece by piece. But I love it more than that because I feel like it was the first movie which made a first story that made me actually empathize to a certain degree around gambling addiction and it's it's this thing we talk about with movies where we talk about they love to write about show don't tell Mm -hmm. and the problem is that not a lot of people do that and worse yet not a lot of people do it well it was probably the first time i'd seen a movie where i could like literally look into the character's eyes and finally understand the the mental block i have around understanding this problem to be like no it is not a decision anymore yeah where like I like to think very technically, very literally, very mechanically, um, and not very emotionally most of the time. And watching him in that scene kind of made me engage more with that idea of understanding to think emotionally. Mm-hmm. See, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because what I latched onto more than that scene because I think that scene is that scene is so very much designed to shock that is absolute shock and awe uh in in ways that i don't know if it has been done seriously on film in terms of binge eating it's certainly been done with drugs and booze and like you say gambling i'm i'm struggling to remember a scene of 
actual binge eating that was not meant to play as comedy. I'm sure it exists, but I'm just struggling to remember it now. However, what I was interested in with his performance and with the, the way that this film approaches the character is we can see early on, like well before that, we can understand the nature of his vice and the nature of the way he is um, treating himself with food because he doesn't actually seem to take a lot of joy in the food he eats. Like if there, if you were to put on one end of the spectrum, a film like big night or chef or even ratatouille and see that love of food, its creation and its consumption. This is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It's not about what they are eating because a film this year, like the menu ends with a hamburger that just looks like the most glorious hamburger you have ever seen. Spoilers not where it ends. Spoilers for the spoilers for the menu, by the way. Um, But but you know what I'm saying? Like it takes joy in the preparation and the consumption of something that is inherently bad for us. This film, meanwhile, whether it's a meatball sub or two pizzas or a bucket of chicken or a candy bar, it clearly wants us to understand that this character is not actually enjoying the food. Like that, that's one interesting thing about the direction and the performance that, that is very much there. I know that some people will come away from those scenes feeling feelings of um, disgust at some level. Yeah, that's not where I was. Where I was was that actually really made me sad. As somebody who enjoys both preparation and consumption of food, watching somebody who is is where they are because of their vice and not actually enjoying it the way that it is there to be enjoyed. But that's not, I don't, I don't see it entirely that way. Cause I do see him as someone who enjoyed, like you get the story from his daughter about them cooking the perfect steak. Mm-hmm. As, I think she said something to the effect of like the steak way better than we've ever had in our family. He, it, that's the thing, like he used to, he's not that yeah. way now. Like he's eating, well, he's eating crap, and he's not eating crap in a way that he enjoys it. Like at one point, he he's eating it so intently he chokes. Yes, but at the same time, like if you take the whole context of the story, mm-hmm. right, where like you start with understanding that he was that person who enjoyed the food, enjoyed the preparation, the consumption, the management of the food, the community you know, with food, right. you know, like being at a table with other people. To then this man who is still in grief over the loss of his partner. Yeah. Right. And has decided whether it was mechanically or emotionally, I'm assuming the latter, um, to have this happen to him through food. It definitely isn't the same as those stakes, but I feel the, the thing he's chasing is the same thing as those stakes, but he just ends up in like a short road, a short road to get there. And Maybe. it doesn't taste the same. No, but emotionally, he's he's searching for that emotion. There's a whole psychology behind this that I don't feel either one of us is smart enough to actually get into. I feel that that's there. I feel that that that's there in both the text and the subtext in terms of his compulsion is something. You know, it's the complication with 
people who have a difficult relationship with with food and with their body. And I say this as somebody who is this is part of my story. You know, like you need calories for fuel. That is just a fact of life. But you can't sometimes it's like, you know, I know what this is going to do to me. I really don't want to do this and that's how, you know, his his partner we learn his tragedy was that he stopped eating. So I'm sure that may have you know, fed into Charlie's version of I'm going to quite literally eat myself to death. Um, Frazier, for what it's worth, takes all of that, like takes that really complicated position. And I believe does the best with it that can be done. Um, you know, as, as, as flawed as this movie is, I cannot lay anything at his feet in terms of a bad performance. Um, his, his character, comes with a lot of optimism, um, which you wouldn't expect. Uh, it comes with a lot of contrition. Like he, he says, I'm sorry a lot, uh, you know, to the point where Liz actually wants him to stop apologizing. Um, meanwhile, his daughter, it seems like he can't apologize enough. And it's a really, really interesting performance uh, that I don't know that the film properly utilizes. The movie as a whole is, it's a piece, as I started out this conversation, appreciating a lot. Mm-hmm. But it remains something that's difficult for me to consider. Like it's, I think maybe six months ago, I was having a conversation with Damien um, and we were talking about um, filmmakers we want to reassess. And one mm-hmm. of them that came up was Aronofsky. Okay. Where like I came from a school where I was very much in love with Aronofsky's films, all the way up to The Wrestler, let's include, um, and his later works. I remember really loving Noah. I've not seen it since it came out, but Mother, me, and that don't, are not friends. <laughs> it's also knowing that his films are some of the films that I find difficult. To watch like even thinking about some of the sequences in requiem for a dream requiem for a dream all my brain says is ass to ass uh, <laughs> uh, jesus i cannot re-watch that movie that's a movie that i i absolutely love the heck out of but i can never go back there when i was in that state of mind watching these movies i literally think i watched that movie like a dozen times I mean, there are beautiful parts in that movie, but the thing is, is that you gotta, you have to tap out way early. And of course, you know, we haven't even talked about your favorite movie, where a man flies a tree into oh, space. So good, I know. Aronofsky's a weird cat because I want to draw a line under Black Swan. I want to draw a line after his first five films. And then put his next three in a bucket. He is a guy who made a name for himself early on, became a a brand for film nerds like you and I. But I almost feel like he's starting to tread on promise more than he's actually treading on results. Because his last several movies, while interesting, are not nearly as good as those first few. And I actually lay a lot of my qualms with this movie at its direction this is a movie that does not trust its materials it is blaze it is based on a play and on the page it is empathetic it is hopeful it is sometimes actually like you said it's funny at times 
but he never trusts that. He doesn't go melodramatic enough that you're like, okay, this is all very heightened Douglas Sirk bullshit. Him, his composer, his cinematographer, they feel the need to wail on the hardest things. That's why I asked at the beginning if this feels like misery porn. I know I just used that in a whole different yeah, context. You did it. You Knock did it up. Yes. <laughs> W-A-I-L. Um, I mean, Probably listen. Still count. I will. I must give the movie props to the fact that the whale is not actually a reference to this large man. Like, you know, thank you enough for that. It's in, Instead, it's this whole metaphor of Moby Dick and, you know, making the boring things interesting to make our boring lives a little more interesting. Okay, movie. You want me to really understand how tragic this is, so you're going to swell up the score. And you really want me to, to notice how terrible physical condition this man is. is. So you, this camera is just going to linger and make me stare at him while he struggles down the hall or while he struggles out of the bath or something like that. And I'm thinking in my head... You could have approached this, like, we can already tell. You know, just just looking at him from the neck up, we can really tell what kind of condition this man is in. You know, we are the pizza guy on the other side of the door who knows that the person inside the door is not in good shape. We did not need to linger. We did not need the swelling soundtrack. You know, we didn't need those, we didn't need the long, drawn-out binge to really understand just how sad and just how affecting this story is. And yet Aronofsky and his crew didn't believe that in themselves. I feel the same way, not necessarily about the movie's existence, but about my, my interaction with it. Cause movies in general, like you leave them and you, I don't know how you feel sometimes about wanting to love a movie, but they're, they're, there's something about those movies where you, you leave it and you're like, I, I love that thing and you immediately want to watch it again. It doesn't necessarily need to be the new Michael Bay film. No, it doesn't. Right? You're, like, you're right. Like, but I mean, I have movies like that. Like, I am probably not going to go back to a film like Ensemble. I'm not going to go back to a film like Blue Valentine. I love the holy hell out of them. And I will tell anybody who talks to me, you should watch this movie because it is a masterpiece. This is not that. Like, I don't want to go back to this, and I think it's a failure. The nurse would be very upset with you calling this movie a failure. She this is perfect. true. <laughs> now, I will, okay, I will admit that while the film is a failure, the performances are not. Um, Hong Chao, um, who is having a great year, because again, coming back to the menu, she's spectacular in that. Her, <gasps> oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, guy. Her character is is really well crafted because on the one hand you think to yourself how could this caregiver how could she enable this person you know it's it's basically like the substance abuse counselor still slipping dime bags to somebody in rehab every time she pulls out you know a bucket of chicken or a meatball we're, we're not all we're not all perfectly morally able to do the right thing all the time this is true but what i like about it is that her character is actually constructed in such a way that it adds up you know when you take this person who on the one hand is a caregiver and on the one hand is trying to get charlie to to 
give in just a little bit, whether it's to go to the hospital or you know any any or, or anything to that to that respect. Um, you can see that part that part of her character, uh, her moral character, not her her fictional character. On the other hand, when you start to bring into the fray the fact that her adopted brother was Charlie's partner and that Charlie loved him when his own family excommunicated him. This must be tearing her up. This must be something that wrestles inside of her that this person loved another person who she cared about and loved him unconditionally. She feels a need to reciprocate that unconditional care, even if it betrays her professional vocation. It's a really, really complicated character. And I think she, that one, that she nails, you know, yeah. the, the film does not nail the material. She nails this part of the material. And I mean, I feel almost the same about like the daughter for 90% of the movie, right? I feel like she definitely goes a little too far in the end with mm -hmm. that whole thing with the, um, the, the missionary and but at the same time, just as it relates to her relationship with um, Frasier, um, it's, I feel that teenage moments all kind of resonate right as to her, how she reacts to everything that's going on. And it's kind of what I was talking about, filling in the gaps. The, the movie has good gaps that it fills in. Like um, it is incredible in that way, but at the same time, is it a masterpiece? Not really. Like, you know, it's more content for Netflix. <laughs> I can't, you know, on, on Netflix, I feel like this thing is just begging to be turned off. That, that, that's the one thing I like about how we saw it is it's like, we're in it. You know, we, we, we paid our money. We're here. We came out in the rain. You know, we're, we're going to stick with this. I mean, to, on top of the fact that you and I are not the type of people to generally walk out of movies anyway. Um, this film has, an obsession with honesty. Charlie goes on and on and on about writing honestly, having an honest thought, being honest. That I think is an interesting theme because on the one hand, a lot of the characters do embody some type of honesty, whether it's, you know, Charlie owning how, badly he has screwed things up to the point where he thinks that he didn't do a single good thing in his life except for being the person who brought ellie into the world um you know asking for honesty out of characters like liz and uh, and our, our favorite missionary there and even asking for honesty out of his his ex-wife played by samantha morton in an amazing scene when she just shows up and elevates the whole movie i think that that to me is, is an interesting thing is there's one scene where everybody's together in the in the same room, where all the key five players are together in the same room. And that was the moment where I kind of thought the movie was going to get its shit together. But unfortunately, after that is when we get into some of its more unsavory moments. What do you think of this film's theme of honesty? Is it paying lip service to this? Does it actually have an honest thought in its head? Is it would it if it was a, if it was an essay? Would Charlie fail it and get it get the film to rewrite its own thesis? What do you think? That's kind of hard because I don't think this movie's honest. No, which is um, ironic. 
But also at the same time, there's another part I think about. You talked about earlier about his optimism. And the scene that I kind of think about as it relates to this is the quote-unquote poem that he reads from his daughter. That's a poem. Um, it's a haiku. Right. But what it is, is it's is it something where he asked his daughter to write something honest, write anything. And he sees these three, three sentences. And eventually he's, he twists his mind around to discover it's a haiku. Now, whether it was meant to be read that way, whether it was intentional, whether it was a extra special middle finger, um, doesn't change the fact that the way he views honesty completely and entirely wraps itself around what he wants to see in the world, in his own optimism. He says it repeatedly, people are incapable of caring, right? But at the same time, we watch a movie in which you talk about um, the the sister-in-law. I'm going to call her that because that's what I think I Liz. see her as. Liz. Liz, um, Liz who, um, let's say, is incapable of caring, but still gives him the still gives him the food. There is the daughter who's incapable of caring, but still gives him the middle finger and runs out the door. There's the, the ex-wife who's incapable of caring, but the moment she shows up, you know immediately she does not care one minute. No. Even the, the delivery guy, Dan, who is incapable of caring, but the minute he hangs out there long enough to see him, you know he doesn't care. All right? He's running for the hills and knows that that is not his job. Right? Um, so as it relates to honesty... I don't think this movie was honest, but at the same time, its lack of honesty almost serves to disprove the entire thesis, both of them, that of honesty and people caring. It's messy. It's so messy. I, I feel like I, I feel like there's a better movie here. I'm 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 mildly curious to see the play. Although I, a part of me does just does not want to go through this again. But I'm curious to see the play because I'm curious to see what happens when we strip away some of these things like score and like camera that forces me into an emotional reaction and see what happens when it is just played. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying that the film wants us to believe in people. One of the last things Charlie says is that people are amazing. And yet, Time and time again in this movie, the people who come in and out of the room are anything but amazing. Thomas just really wants to convert him. He, like he, he has been very clear saying, I have no interest in Christianity. I have read that book twice. I've read every pamphlet you're going to hand me. No, thank you. And yet he is still on his mission. He still believes that he has some higher purpose even though we eventually find out that he's not even in that for altruistic reasons either El ellie is a complete mystery as to what is driving her at any given moment whatever you think is driving her from moment to moment that is not it that's the only thing that you can tell about her is that whatever she seems to be playing on the surface is not her ultimate game you know like that that's that's the thing is the movie wants us to believe that people are amazing, and yet it really doesn't give us a whole lot of amazing people 
maybe Liz. Like Liz is pretty amazing in terms of how she defies her own vocation in the name of respect and family and love. Nobody else in this movie is amazing, I would say. Yeah, pretty much. Including uh, Charlie. <laughs> including Charlie. The end of it kind of lies lies true, that whole idea of him lying to himself, where he finally takes those steps, and that's when you realize it's not real. He just wants this to be real. All right, whether that's our famous movie's final scene of seeing a man stroll off into heaven or if it's him imagining this moment it is a completely dishonest film yeah characters who are incapable of being honest or caring and i i I feel like to do that with this kind of subject matter i feel is disrespectful it's it's that's the problem it's not (laughs) you know you remember what our parents used to say to us i'm not mad i'm just really disappointed was that, was that just me? I say, I say that to movies. I don't say that to people. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you say that to your son. I'm like, it's a little early for that. Um, no, no. no my, my parents said that one to me. I'm sure that there are parents listening to this who have said this to their kids or their parents said it to them. That's my thing. I'm very disappointed in this movie, um, which is a shame because the film is funny. The film is sweet. The film, at times seems like it's going to be empathetic but you give it 60 seconds and then it changes its mind we usually take a souvenir from a movie something tangible or intangible if you could take a move away from a movie and keep you would uh andrew robinson what would be your souvenir from the whale there's not much here but i'm gonna steal his optimism because I think I need I think I need to level up. I'm, I'm just, people consider me an optimistic person, but like, he's he, he he beat me on any level. I'll I'll take that level up there. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I'm sure mine would probably surprise nobody. I want his books. <laughs> Is there any specific one that stood out to you, or are you just like I saw shelves? I'm sure I can find something in there. I mean, he's a smart guy, so I'm sure the library is well curated. He's got some real, like, I, I, at one point, he's rocking a really nice copy of Thoreau. Um, that, that's the thing, is that it looks like he has the best stuff and great copies at that. So my only disappointment is neither of us seems to, in this whole conversation, mention one of the most important key scenes in this movie. Which is? when we discover the name of his partner, that is Alan Grant. And I then spent the next five minutes while sitting there watching this movie, trying to remember why that name sounds familiar, if and only to remember that's the name in Jurassic Park. (laughs) And I'm like, so he was was with Sam Neill, and then he let Sam Neill die. That's not... (laughs) I I mean, that's a whole other movie, I think. (laughs) Oh boy, we rate here on the Acast on a scale of one to four stars. Andrew Robinson, Darren Aronofsky. Oh, it's four stars. Okay, yeah. I'll probably go for a two and a half, just because. Like, I'm not saying this movie's perfect. I'm not saying it's the thing that everyone should be watching, but yeah. you're gonna get something out of it. Two. This is a two for me. I mean, watch, watch it. Definitely watch it for Hong Chao. Tilt your head and squint your eyes. And try to see the kind of movie it wants to be. Watch it for Brendan Fraser. Um, certainly watch it for Samantha Morton and for Sadie Sink. But 
when you have to watch it for the rest, when you have to watch it for its camera work, its philosophy, uh, you're you're not going to be enjoying it. Uh, you know, you are going to be eating the food and not enjoying the food as you eat it, and and just please eat gently. Um, you know, we will do a kind of protracted other side with this film because I feel like there are better versions of this. Um, where did you go to after coming away from Darren Aronofsky's latest um, experiment? So the first one that came to mind, which was almost immediate, okay. um, was me recalling 1952 Zikiru. If you want to talk about Ooh. a movie of someone coming to terms with their mortality and yes. reconnecting with people. It's, yeah. <laughs> and in the year that, you know, in a week from now, we get to see, look, it's, it's a remake, but I'm calling it this just because it makes fun of Douglas because this is how he keeps talking to me about anime. The English dub of Ikiru is coming out in a week called Living with... Oh, wait, do you not know this? Well, nigh. That's right. Yeah, that's a remake of Ikiru. I did know that. I, I saw I saw that and I forgot that I saw it. Like, I, I saw the information about it and I forgot I saw the information. Mm-hmm. Let's call it an English dub for Douglas so he watches it. <laughs> um, that, movie's, that movie is magnificent. That movie was one of my blind spots a few years ago. I either started the year with it or I ended the year with it on somebody's suggestion. They said it would be a perfect either like, you know, end of year movie or new year's resolution type movie. Um, it's, it's magnificent. It's, it's been a minute, but I've seen it. Um, I've not watched this in a, quite some time and I keep meaning to that. And that and seven samurai. I'm like, when am I going to find the time to watch these again? <laughs> it's, but I mean, what I love about it is when it comes to a character facing his mortality is much more gentle about it. It's not about, turning people's lives upside down. It's not about having these long guilt laden crying fits about where you went wrong in life. It's just, well, my time is about up and I have shit that I want to do, you know? And, and it's very pragmatic in that way. You know, it, it kind of actually makes sense that it's going to be made into a British movie with Bill Nye. Cause I see <laughs> pragmatism. In, in him in that. That's that's a good one. Um, I think I my first knee-jerk reaction when I thought about this movie, I thought about another movie about self-destruction that is also unpleasant, but it's unpleasant in a different kind of way, and I was okay with it. Um, I thought about Leaving Las Vegas, 1995, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, uh, kind of at the end of him trying to be serious. Uh, for, for for a minute, you know, when he had a serious phase, um, a man who goes to Las Vegas to drink himself to death, he's just decided that there's nothing worth living for anymore. And he's just going to go keep on drinking until he dies, literally, quite literally. That movie also, again, very unpleasant at times. It, it's, a, it's a movie where you have hope a few times over that maybe – He'll pull out of this tailspin. Maybe these two damaged people will be a little less damaged if they're together. But he just can't, like Charlie, he can't stop long enough for any kind of change to really take hold. And I don't know, maybe I'm just remembering it because of the age I was when I saw it and a little bit more starry-eyed 
you know, <laughs> cinephile kind of thing. But I felt that film had a greater sense of empathy than The Whale does. I mean, that's one of probably the best Cage performances. Like, if we're doing serious Cage, mm-hmm. like, I love me some Nick Cage. I remember I probably only saw that movie, like, within the last decade for the first time. I definitely really loved it. Weirdly enough, my brain just thinks, what's the other Cage movie in Vegas? There's another one, which is like a more silly, like he's getting married in Vegas sort of movie. Honeymoon in Vegas! Honeymoon in Vegas. The Flying Elvis is the out of the plane! Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My brain always wants to put those two movies together. I mean, that would make a wild double bill. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Nick Cage... Can't go wrong with Nick Cage in a movie. But I feel like that one's a good... Did you have another uh, other side to go with this, or just Ikiru? I have one more, and it's really just to aggravate you. Oh, God. Um, Because I can't come on this podcast and not mention anime. (laughs) It's it's the thing I'm brought onto this world to do. How have we not just decided to do a series where you get me to watch shit? I mean, because I've already give, you've already given me the opportunity to make you watch shit, and it's gone bad. True. That's <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good it. point. Yes, <laughs> you had you had one chance. <laughs> so the movie I want to talk about is a movie that came out like five-ish years ago, and it's it actually has a good relationship between the two of us because it's a movie I saw here and I wrote about it, and it was a movie that I felt very unique and very gentle about so much so that I had to like send a copy to you to to edit for me because I'm like I want to make sure that I don't say anything too crazy because I can be a bit blunt at times um, <laughs> the moving the moving question is called a silent voice um, it's a very popular anime film from the year it came out it was a very huge success um, it's on Netflix everyone go watch it um, and it's about uh, a young boy who meets a young girl in school and the young girl happens to be deaf and he is a terrible young boy to her and does some terrible things and becomes ostracized and then we follow along with him over the years as he as that process goes through and he comes out on the other side and then reconnects with this young girl many years later Um, and it is a beautiful film not just story-wise, animation-wise, visually, it is, it's truly like one of the, one of the best anime films of the last decade. And I, I think more people should watch it. (laughs) Believe it or not, I actually do have this in my watch list. I've just never got around to it. When I, when it comes to the international films, because I need to pay more attention uh, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like I can't put that on and like start cooking, you know what I mean? Like that that's what it's something I'm putting on when I'm in for the night, and and looking for something new to watch. And sometimes the you know I, I need to I need to choose, but I do actually I do actually really want to see that, and I'm interested when you say that it makes an interesting companion film to this movie. So um, just to let you know, time wise, you can watch two of it. Or RRR. Well, hold on a second. This movie is still over two hours. So is it? I, I just remembered it, it can't be that long. It's, but two, okay. it's two hours and ten, but it's still shorter than RRR. But you you've you know what? You've gained currency. Like you you've you're, that's this is what happens. Like I can't really I can't stay mad at you for too long because you point me to something really good, but then you take that goodwill and you blow it by pointing me towards something spectacularly dumb. And I, you know, text you and I say, Why am I here? Um 
my other other side. Uh, it is another film that um, it is more of an example of tragedy porn, um, but I feel like it knows where the line is. Um, the other film that I had for the other side, another example of tragedy porn, goes back to 2001. I thought about Monsters Ball. Oh, I've not thought of that movie in so long. <laughs> I don't think I think a lot of people forgot all about that movie. But that's a movie where one bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing just keeps on happening to Holly Berry over the course of the movie. Um, similarly to Billy Bob Thornton over the course of the movie, like just finds himself in terrible situation after terrible situation. Um, that's another one of these ones where it wants us to look at. Look how awful life can be and maybe something beautiful could come out of it, you know, but it's a film like this movie where it's better in terms of performance than it is the the story as a whole. Um, It is a film that is interesting in the way that it uses some of its characters like uh, some of its actors, like Heath Ledger, like Sean Combs, um, even like Peter Boyle, reminding us of old school Peter Boyle. Like this kind of dropped into a moment where everybody knew him from Everybody Loves Raymond. And he comes in here and he's a terrible human being. But you go back to some of those 70s movies. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a guy who used to play. Terrible My friend Eddie Coyle, I saw yeah. that movie last year and I saw him pop up and I'm like, oh. Yeah, he's mm. magnificent. That, that's the thing. When you get to this kind of story, I think there's no way to avoid the flaw of it, but you're just kind of taking on how much flaw you're willing to, to get away with. And I feel like the whale is like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Just keep going. We'll be okay. It's all fine. Whereas some of these other movies are like, okay, we need to try a little harder here. Um, you for the first time have said a man's name in my ears that I've not heard for so long. That's Sean Combs. My brain just went right. That's Diddy. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, who's who says Sean Combs? I mean, like, listen. First of if all, you can tell if you can tell me Ludacris's name. The man has had ten <laughs> names over the course of his career, at least, probably more. I could have called him Sean John. I could have called him P. Diddy. I could have called him Puff Daddy. I could have called him Puffy. There, there's there's all sorts of names for this guy. But I'm like, you know what? You were born Sean Combs. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. So, good on you. Thank you. That is episode 299 of the Matinee Cast. I am really, really grateful that Andrew was able to join us and argue about this movie. Come on back. I think... On Monday, February 6th, that date is somewhat fluid, but it's the date I'm trying to hit for episode 300. Um, I've got something really special planned, uh, something that's going to take a lot of work, something that I feel really, really passionate about, and I hope will live up to doing this type of shenanigan for 13 years now. Um, But uh, yeah, 300 shows, uh, I want to mark it. with something special. Andrew is on the Unnamed Movie Podcast, which you can find anywhere better podcasts are found. Uh, what do you guys got coming up that people can look forward to? Um, we got our end of the year episode going to go up probably very, very soon. So by the time this goes up, people might just be able to go to Gman Reviews and see it there because I finished editing it today. <laughs> and it clocks in at a whopping 
Um, it's only two hours. Oh, we, wow. We're, we're, we're generous these days. We're, you, we don't have time. Oh, well, I was going to say, you guys, you guys are getting pulled in all directions. The days of having to split the year-end show into two episodes are gone now. Yeah, I think I did three the first year, oh didn't my. I? <laughs> I don't, I don't recall. That's a long time ago, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I can't wait to hear it. Um, and if people, are you still on the Twitter? Yeah, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still tweeting nonsense. Probably more retweeting football shenanigans. Right. Um, so you know, um, I'm at Gman Reviews. Um, username hasn't changed yet. I, I question. If, if someone would give me my name, I might take it. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca. You can also find them on all the usual places. Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google, Stitcher Radio, Apple, TuneIn, Radio Public. If a podcast is there, I'm probably there. If not, let me know. I'll put my show there. It's real easy. Feedback on The Whale can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me. Ryan at the matinee.ca. I'm still on Twitter somewhat, matinee underscore CA. There's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Well, you? that's probably the bigger the bigger news statement. You're still on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's the lead right there. Any final thoughts, my friend? Um they could have they could have made it smaller. You know, I could be mad at you, but you're helping me out. So I really just have to take your shenanigans and just walk away. Check your phone. All right. For Andrew, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.